Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top, Produ- uh, Top Producer. I'm your host, Paul Niefer, and today I'm I'm actually really looking forward to, although all my podcasts, I look forward to having a discussion with the, with the person I'm talking to, but today I got Bruce Sherrick, who's a professor at the University of Illinois, or is that correct? Professor, instructor, yes. what's, what's the technical title, Bruce? Uh, that's, hi, Paul, good to be here with you. I'm a professor at the University of Illinois and have a couple of fun designations. I'm the director of the TIA Center for Farmland Research, and then uh, I kind of say, if you've been here long enough and done something long enough in one area, you often get a chance to hold a chair. And I have a professorship uh, from Jerry Fruin, so I have a couple of extra titles, and it's just been a delight. I, I get to teach in the finance arena, work with our farm doc team, work with the Illinois Society of Professional Farm Managers, work with uh, Senate Ag now and, and folks in D.C. on policy issues, crop insurance issues, farm finance issues. And and I, I kind of like to say, if you're the last guy standing in the thing that you've done for 30 plus years, uh, you get to meet almost everybody else in the industry. So I've been absolutely delighted to have that experience. Yeah, and we do have a farm bill. I don't, well, I might as well put you on the spot here. So what's the odds we're going to have a farm bill this year? Gosh, you know, I don't put them, you know, uh, as a professional economist, you hope that your prediction record is 50%, you know, the one hand and the other hand. But um, I think the rather than predict when it will be passed, I guess I would comment that the emphasis on conservation, the emphasis on crop insurance, the emphases on things that have a potential positive impact on agriculture are probably the things that have the greatest support or most broad support. And um, we'll look forward to the debates. Everybody wants to talk about how to uh, change the edges of programs, though, rather than wholesale solutions or deletions or additions. So I think it'll be a fairly comfortable, the, the components around SNAP will be heavily debated as they always are, but I think the components around agriculture at least have some positive kind of momentum as I think you and I may have been at the same meeting where I uh, first learned of the composition of uh, both committees completely and how many brand new folks there are at the table this time. So yeah, I think yeah. the educational effort to get everybody kind of on the same page, maybe a little greater than in past farm bills, but I, I'll remain a, a, a optimist until I've been given ample opportunity and reasons to not be. Yeah, I think uh, the one thing that seems to be debating right now a little bit, and, and I think you're right, it's sort of on the edges, although it could definitely directly affect farmers, is you know they, they want to increase reference prices. The problem is you got to find the money to do it, so I, I just don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah, I think if you have a reference prices so far below the question about the relevance of reference prices and, you know, personally, if I had to say where I would want to focus, I, I personally think crop insurance, some of the conservation titles are really key, but they end up becoming vehicles for a lot of other elements that are, you know, advocated for by regions. Yeah. And the problem with reference price uh, tinkering at this point, from my perspective, is it it begins a bit of a commodity battle and you know, right. parts of the country that are corn-based, soybean-based, rice-based, cotton-based, peanut, you end, you end up with arguments inside the locker room, so to speak, around which crops should get the most benefit. And so I, I hope that's not where we go. I hope that we can have a more sane conversation about um, things that matter. But if prices are high enough, the reference prices aren't relevant. To some degree, that's already the good news. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually what we hope for. So, uh, well, you know, we've we've actually jumped into the conversation a little bit too quick. Uh, we actually need to, uh, you know, get your background, uh, where you grew up, went to school, and and so on and so forth. Well, I'll, I'll, it's not a super interesting story, and it's not a terribly uncommon story. I grew up on a small, highly diversified farm in the middle of Ohio. Uh, <clears throat> had a, a family farm that uh, was really designed by my parents to give us all, you know, work experiences in every possible uh, venue of agriculture so that we would have the opportunity to go to college and, you know, have a choice. Would we ever want to try to become a farmer? And uh, I was the youngest of four. We had um, a really incredibly diverse farm. I would, you know, almost challenge people to come up with a, a more complex experience because we were close enough to um, uh, smuckers that we had a couple of things we could sell there like strawberries and, and green beans and cucumbers. And I, I really put myself through college with sweet corn. Yeah. Um, and then we had uh, sheep and a couple of steers and some pigs and some chickens and some guineas. And we had about a four acre garden, you know, for the family and neighbors and and then my parents would just rent me land, you know, at when I look back at submarket values so I could make enough money to go to college where I went at Ohio State and did all of my degrees at Ohio State <clears throat> with apologies to those from Michigan, I guess, and other spots in the Big Ten. Uh, but no, it was a, a Buckeye all through and through and got to University of Illinois very much uh, as an accident, to be blunt. Um, I had gone through a finance program at Ohio State and uh, was really at that point in my life thinking I would not, you know, be involved in agriculture as directly as I had growing up. And Illinois has an incredibly strong agriculture and finance program and asked if I'd interview. And I came and interviewed and they offered me a job. And apparently I said, oh, no, comma, I would never work at Illinois. And the reason, <laughs> I, the reason I know that so specifically is... Um, one of my colleagues then had that made into calligraphy and framed when I ended up working here. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I've been here 33 years now. So it's been a um, incredibly wonderful university, incredibly great department, uh, incredible college of ag, uh, great students all the way through, and just been very fortunate because I think the the norm these days is not to be at one place for your entire career. No, that's that's uh, uh, just like in. Uh, basketball i was watching the um uh the finals the other night and uh, they had uh, haslam on there for miami he'd been with the miami heat for over 20 years and there's only been three players in the nba to uh, uh to do that dirk nowitzki and then um kobe bryant and uh, haslam so that, that doesn't happen very often yeah yeah no i am um, i grew up you know in ohio some I used to say that my uh, before they were renamed the Guardians, my, my favorite team was the Indians. Just none of them played for Cleveland anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. And then uh, and since I now live uh, near Denver, they won the other night, so that was good. So yeah. uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. So so your role at the university is it's sort of ag focused, but in the yes. finance department, or are no, you in the ag department, or I'm I, I'm I'm just curious on that. Yeah. We're, I'm in a college of ag in the uh, Department of Ag and Consumer Economics, and we have, uh, oddly though, at our university, we run the Certified Financial Planning Program, so we have uh, financial planning as one of our undergraduate uh, tracks, 
the original farm credit institution was designed by former faculty members here. And so we've had a very long and very productive relationship with farm credit. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's become a very big part of what we do. And we have uh, a long-standing relationship. Uh, frankly, one of the first uh, projects I stumbled into at the University of Illinois, uh, Dave Lins and Cheryl DeVeast and a couple of others were involved in working with NACREF to stand up their uh, farmland index. So I've been working on that data set since the beginning, but it's all in a college of ag, but the, the courses I teach tend to be, uh, you know, financial products classes or uh, I teach one modeling class. It's pretty much a numerics kind of class. And but all of them, I try to focus as much toward the business of agriculture and the uh, kind of understanding how massive and critical uh, that sector is, but in a financial or business context. Okay. And, and you mentioned NACREF. Uh, for the listeners out there, can you explain what that stands for and what Good it is? Point. <clears throat> Good point. The, the acronyms are only familiar to those who made them up, right? <laughs> so National Council of Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries is an organization that collects and audits and creates independent financial performance data for lots of things. They're most well known for their Odyssey index or the commercial real estate index. And there are, you know, strip mall returns and other forms of REITs or in real estate investment trust returns. And farmland and timber are their two specialty indexes. And so more than 16 billion in farmland assets, but all reported on identical accounting uh, um, means. So we have really accurate information about the performance and can divide it up by location in the country, uh, type of crop, uh, lots of other attributes. And it's become kind of viewed as the norm or the standard against which performance is measured for farmland as an investment or the uh, financialization of the asset class has kind of occurred through this mechanism, if you will. And on top of that, I have a, I think one of the longest now running uh, primary data sets on farmland transfers I have all the transfers from Illinois, every farm that sold in Illinois back 30 some years, and also have curated a data set from USDA on farmland value. So, so a lot of my work ends up relating farmland investments to other investments and saying, how would one look at the role of farmland, either in a family planning sense or a mixed asset portfolio sense or as a hedge against inflation or uh, things like that. And so for those investors out there, uh, you know, one of the terms that they tend to use correlation. So if, a, if you have a correlation factor one, that means your investment, whatever it might be, really is in tandem with the market or, or whatever you're actually right. going against. Um, how is the correlation for ag land versus maybe stocks? Uh, and then maybe we'll talk about the correlation to maybe bonds. How, how does that uh, typically look? So that's been probably the, the uh, research product that we um, provide and keep fairly updated that has the most attention out in the, what I'll call the real world for now. And that's because uh, farmland has had a very high historic rate of return compared to even equities or the S&P 500 or the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, to, to broaden your to broaden the answer to your question a bit, farmland as a financial asset has what would be called a very high alpha or 
returns that are higher than would be expected given the risk and a pretty low beta or not really related with other financial investments. But most importantly, positive correlation with inflation. So if we look all the way back into the 60s and the, you know, the long run up of inflation, you know, post gold standard into the early 80s, the farm crisis, the declining interest rates and declining inflation, the most recent episode of higher inflation and so on. Farmland returns are very highly correlated with inflation, and there are reasons to expect that to be the case. You, you do expect that the very definition of inflation, which is the nominal price change in broadly consumed commodities or goods and services. Well, what's the most broadly consumed commodity? Well, commodities. So farmland does have the benefit of having nominal price changes of things consumed somewhat embedded in its you know, thesis for return. But more importantly, negative correlation or zero correlation with equities and positive inflation with other fixed income. So people sometimes refer to farmland as an investment in gold plus a coupon. So you get a, a fairly low annual cash flow, fairly high long-term rates of return, tax advantages to the asset class if, if it's a multi-generational question. Um, and I'm not sure if that fully answers your question, but if you then go one step higher and say, how does it work for, say, your retirement system to own or your uh, you know, pension fund to own. It turns out to work very well as well because it's a long duration asset. Again, positively correlated returns with inflation. And then the, the final thing I'll say, I guess, on that is that the long-term thesis for both production of food and production of calories used in alternative or greener energy sources, um, I think that's returned some attention to the asset class as something that could be positively held in conjunction with other positions. And then within the ag spectre, uh, sector, um, we have sort of what I almost call two classes of land. We have permanent crop land, you know, apples or, or, or vineyards, et cetera. And then we have the more of the annual or the grains and so on. Are those is is the rate of return similar on that, or is is the maybe over time it's similar, but there's a bigger standard deviation between the returns? I'm just curious on that. Yeah, no, that's an absolutely perfect question. The uh, <clears throat> annual returns to what you would think of as annual production crops, so corn, soybeans, wheat, things where it's essentially uh, the crop is gone each year, um, have great stability. You get a cash return and that cash return is pretty fixed because you generally will have a tenant or if you're farming it yourself, there are ways of managing risk through crop insurance and other things. And long-term appreciation. Um, uh, there's a great quote all the way back in the late 1800s that says there are two sources of return to the ownership of farms. The first being the income from the annual production, the second being the growth of the value of the assets, and the latter will always be the greater. It's a, it's a great quote. Um, <clears throat> perhaps Morrow or one of the other early agriculturalists. But that's that's held true. And permanent crops, tree nuts and wine grapes and citrus and um, you know almonds, pistachios are the ones we tend to look at, apples in the Pacific Northwest, would be expected to have a higher total return through time and more volatility. One, because you have to re replace the above ground assets. Two, because the 
in a sense, operating company that has to live over top of it. It's not just an annual event. I think in the, the longest and most deep data sets, you'll find that to be the case, that permanent crops do outperform percent and a half to two percent, perhaps, over uh, annual, but have higher risk. And then within NACREF, um, there's a little extra heavy concentration of apples and almonds. And we kind of know the story. Almond prices had some tough times and apple prices had, you know, all the way back to the Alar scare, in fact, have had yeah. a couple of episodes that, uh, and, and uh, you know, varietal obsolescence issues that in any period of time might actually be pretty bad, but over time have done reasonably well as you're question suggested. So essentially part of it is probably comes back to what's your risk tolerance because like you say there's definitely more risk with the permanent crop and then also maybe your background like uh, you grew up on a diversified farm. I grew up on not quite a diversified farm but I was you know wheat, uh, dry peas, green peas, barley and so on and I appreciate the you know, growing corn and soybeans and wheat. So that's that's sort yeah. of what I focused on versus, you know, buying an apple orchard or a vineyard. Although I'm still young enough, maybe I'll do that someday. Well, I I think uh, uh, my final comment in most rooms when there's farmers in the room is what asset would you rather own? And I think those of us who did grow up in agriculture have a little extra heart, heartfelt fondness for something. And if, uh, if I were picking both from a financial and from an emotional perspective, the next place I could put a dollar, I I still would favor farmland pretty highly. Yeah. Plus that that allows me to go out and ride the combine on my farm when we're harvesting it. So that's <laughs> exactly. that, that that that's called my combine therapy. So that's pretty hard to beat. So, uh, um, well, Bruce, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message, and then we're going to come back and dive a little bit into uh, maybe the trends in the future. Plus, uh, talk about interest rates and so on a little bit. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgra Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance. RoboAgra Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, RoboAgra Finance. everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm your host Paul Niefer and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Professor Bruce Sherrick from the University of Illinois. So Bruce, we've had a run-up, a rapid run-up in, in interest rates and so far you know it hasn't really seemed to affect farmland values that much. Maybe the amount of land that's trading hands but it seems like values have held up pretty good. Is is that still accurate or or what do you see with the, the interest rate scenario? Yeah, this is um I, I'm you know 
glad we only have six more hours to talk about this subject because this is such a simple one. But you know, <laughs> the, um, uh, there are a couple of things like empirical issues to keep in mind when one thinks about this from a from a traditional finance theory perspective. If the cost of capital goes up, you expect the value of future income to be discounted more heavily. The asset value should respond by declining. So the inverse relationship between interest rates and bond prices, for example, is how we tend to teach that even. And farmland has not demonstrated that same relationship. I think your question was very perceptive. The volume of transfers seems to have really, really shut down. That spigot seems to have dried up a lot. But the values have held up reasonably well. <clears throat> and with respect to interest rate first and then income second, and I'll touch the interest rate question first. Remember that Farmland as a sector, so at, put put the entire uh, holdings of the country onto one balance sheet, and it's now four trillion plus. So for the first time, four trillion with a T, and only thirteen percent leverage. So thirteen percent debt underneath it. So an interest rate change doesn't have as big of a proportional impact as if you were say talking about companies traded on the stock exchange where the average leverage turns out to be around two thirds, 66 to 68%. So one, there's very low leverage. Secondly, a lot of debt that does exist now is fixed rate debt at very low rates. So in my personal case, I have a very low rate mortgage and if the interest rates go up, all that really does is lock me into the existing one. The value of that debt or the cost to me in a relative sense went down. So Increasing in interest rate environment when you have long-term fixed rate debt doesn't feel negative to me. It does lock me down, though, on transactions. And then for operating loans, I, I always think about it like um, in the middle of the country, uh, suppose I needed $400 to put in an acre of corn and the interest rate went up by 2% and I have it for half of a year. That's kind of a bushel of corn difference. It's not as profound. I think the question, though, is long term. If interest rates persist at a level that seems you know, more normal to my memory, but very high relative to a period of time when the Fed was managing a lot of things by holding interest rates around zero, you know, post housing crisis through the pandemic, uh, then I think we do have to say that the cap rates have to adjust somewhere. We have to have some um, equilibrium or some rationalization between income and cost of capital. And I think that's where the other part of that question is important because in in the you know internal battle, cost of capital goes up, but if income goes up or expected income goes up proportional to your cost of capital, you would have no impact on asset value. They would just balance themselves out. Likewise, when Last time farm incomes were declining, interest rates were going down. We kind of skated that ridge line very well, and, and farmland values held up quite well. So I think it, it's true that the impact directionally and the pressure directionally is, is what you described. And for institutional investors who are bringing a lot of debt, they're not nearly as active in the market, and partly why you see volumes down so much. We do see some softening at recent you know, first and fourth quarter are the important quarters from my perspective to watch prices. But um, <clears throat> we've seen some softening of prices at auctions mid-year, uh, price per PI point. But those tend to be sales that are, you know, brought to market for 
uh, idiosyncratic reasons almost. And so I think you'll see what you described, but it'll be hard to find in a broad sense. I won't be surprised if in the next year we have a softening of land values a bit. Um, rents tend to be a trailing average of, of income. And I, it won't surprise me, but I'm not expecting a crash. And I don't see, I, I don't see it as being driven entirely by interest rates. I think the prospects for income are actually more important to think about than the direct cost of interest. Well, and then also you you were indicating that you know farmland values are sort of a good hedge against inflation, so that sort of helps buffer that downward trend too. So, uh, and and also. Farmers, you know, since about 19, 2019, 20, 21, 22, with the, the MFP money, the pandemic money, the increase in, in crop prices, uh, have had three or four pretty good years, so they've built up some cash. Yeah, the balance sheets are strong and um, <clears throat> kind of anticipating where, where the conversation might be headed. Farmers are the primary buyers, but a very small fraction of farmland turns over every year. In the middle of the country, one and a half to two percent of farmland sells at arm's length per year. Now, more of that transfers, family trusts or family consolidations or um, joining ups kind of things. But it, it's a thin market, so there is a, a thin market support effect. And neighbors who are fighting about the farm in between, who may get exactly one chance in their lifetime to buy it, might rationally pay more than an investor from the outside who doesn't because one of them is adding it to their operation and spreading out fixed costs. And one of them is having a legacy argument in their own mind about what land they own. And so um, I forget if it's a Will Rogers quote or Mark Twain, but you know, the only land I want is the land that borders my own. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I think that does have some impact, but the, the, um, the, the primary investor and the primary buyer being the same person, uh, if you're a farmland owner, investor, and operator, or if you have an outside institutional investor or a you know local investor who has no actual farming operations, those fractions move around a bit through time. Um, and as markets get really thin and interest rates go up, you do see an elimination of some of the you know pure investment buyers. In speaking of those investment buyers, you know we have certainly seen more institutional, whether they're publicly traded or the family office or the large pension uh, funds and so on. Do you see that trend continuing? Do you see it getting even more or less or, or where do you see that going? Right. No, I mean, this, this is a great question and it's always one that there's a great deal of sensitivity around. Uh, the Mormon Church has acquired a large number of holdings. The questions about foreign ownership really hit the news lately. Institutional investors, sometimes locally, you'll hear people really supporting them because it brings another source of capital for an expanding farm or really objecting to them because there's a farm bot that someone thought they wanted to get. You know, it's, it's so it's a it's a heart strings tugging question to begin with. <clears throat> but it's still the case that very, very high fraction, 96 plus percent owned by families. And so when you see a report about corporate farms, I always ask the reporter, can you can you show me one of those, please? I have, haven't found one yet, frankly. Um, and, you know, family corporations are often sensible business ownership structures to own a farm, but they're still family family farm. 
So I think the uh, trends in ownership are expected, uh, continuing, consolidation is continuing, economies of scale still matter. Uh, um, I, again, likewise, when I hear a reporter, I'm very pro-farm as you can, pro-farm yep. pro-farmer as you can hear in my voice, but you'll get a call from an investor about, um, you know, those those terrible institutional buyers ruining farms. I'm like, well, can, can you show me one? Because they tend to be able to use the best farmer in the region and and because of headline risk, tend to be very, very diligent about good practices. And can you show me a family farm that's you know, not the best steward of their resources of anybody in the world. And, you know, the the anti-farm story tends to peel away pretty quickly. And the ownership uh, uh, by, so, so I've had a lot of interviews about foreign ownership recently because of the, you know, Chinese balloon and yeah. the yeah. North, Fork, North Forks uh, questions and relative to military bases and so on. But if you're careful about it and look at the data, it's, it's almost rounding error. And China is essentially non-existent. There's almost no one from China. The the folks who do have some foreign ownership are Canadians, which expect, and the foreign ownership tends to be, you know, through something like Weyerhaeuser or Georgia Pacific or forest lands more than in farmland, in fact, or um, UK or the Dutch or Germans or, and so I, I hope to just demystify that. And the trends I see are continuation towards larger scale, continuation toward more rented land, and kind of business practical structures or efficiency in operation tend to be the things that are winning out. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. And then we also have to remember that we as Americans have invested in foreign countries, foreign farmland too. You know, there's a lot of Americans down in Brazil and in yeah. other countries, Australia. Uh, so. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, we we can't just simply say not in our backyard, so to speak. But uh, well, again, we, there you know there are certain countries we'd rather not have in here, and and I think we we know who those are. Right. There's two two comments, and much more serious comments than perhaps I was saying. Uh, there is a, a maintained State Department list of countries that we have adversarial relationships with, and so to buy or sell at a corporate level with China, North Korea. Iran and Russia, I believe, are the four currently. I may have that list wrong, but there are rules for that. But as you pointed out, Americans own far more, far, far more real estate real estate outside the U.S. than foreigners own inside the U.S. And it raises an issue of, is farmland distinct? Because residentially, we don't have that question at all. And I, in fact, had an interview on some radio station. And I just got eviscerated afterward for kind of making the joke that said, so in the US, we even have a TV show dedicated to helping people find foreign vacation lands, House Hunters International. Or, yeah. And so, so what's unique about farmland does need to be part of the question if you're asking about foreign ownership. It doesn't apply to residential real estate or other forms of real holdings in the same way. And do we want to be um, you know, consistent and say that if, if we can't let others own in the U.S., we can't own as U.S. citizens outside of the U.S. Because as you pointed out, Brazil and Chile and Argentina to a lesser extent, and Australia, Eastern Europe to a very great extent, um, there are U.S. interests. But more importantly, I don't know how you disentangle it when it's held in a form like if you buy a share of Volkswagen stock and they own some developable land that's currently farmed. Are you a foreign owner? 
Yeah. Well, yeah. if you're a, a UK resident and you buy some Warehouser Pacific or, or Georgia Pacific or some Warehouser stock, you're now a foreign owner of resources in Canada and the US, technically. So those kind of questions, I think, once you once you look honestly and openly about it, become difficult to to untangle. But more importantly, if free flows of capital are encouraged so that you end up with the most efficient ownership, the lowest cost of food, the greatest food security in the sense of production certainty. If a foreign owner bought a parcel in the middle of Kansas, I'm pretty sure the, the uh, farmer's going to live in Kansas and the grain's going to go to the local Kansas elevator and there's not going to be an impact on output prices. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to argue that there's some differential advantage or disadvantage because, again, as I've been unfortunately quoted online, is that the, the land doesn't tend to know who owns it. So, and weather doesn't stop, you know, going over a parcel based on who owns it or a geographic boundary. So I think it's an issue that's gotten a little too much attention from my perspective. I know it's important and there are real legitimate issues and farmland does have community values associated with it and, uh, uh, structural legacies that are important. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. But if I'm a farmer and I'm trying to get my my uh, operation expanded another, you know, I need another 120 acres to justify this million dollar combine, having an owner who's willing to lease it to me, whether they're my neighbor, somebody from Canada, a pension fund, um, a religious organization, I, I don't personally care that much who I got it from. I care whether or not I can get it at a reasonable price. I totally agree. Totally agree. Well, you know, we could probably go for another, like you say, six hours on various subjects, but uh, I do try to keep these to less than about 45 <laughs> minutes. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll finish up with uh, three or four questions I normally ask, and then uh, maybe Bruce, you and I will have a, another conversation a few months down the road. Perfect. So, uh, always enjoy those. Okay. First question, uh, who was your mentor? Uh, it's, it may sound cheesy, but it's absolutely true. I have to say my dad. I, I just, uh, he was an absolutely remarkable human in every way that I can describe. But I say he was the original never know influence in my life. And so he and and my mom, you know, raised four kids on a small farm where the answer was, if, if I ask, can I? The answer was never no. It was always, mm, think about it. Could you? How would you? What are the impacts? How do you think about that? Does anybody else care? Can you afford it? Can you earn enough money to do it? It wasn't, no, that's a dumb idea. So when I wanted to build a really light body tri rod because I thought I could get more air jumping off the back of the bank barn than anybody else, the question still wasn't no. <laughs> it was, <laughs> um, would that be safe? Do you think you could do that? And will you check with me before you go the first time? And so. <laughs> But he, he was a, a clever guy. We had a, a really nice farm shop and um, two quick stories about him and why I admire him and viewed that as a form of mentorship is he thought if you didn't know the answer to something, it was your job to go get the answer. So the curiosity about solving problems and is quite experimental on our farm. We tried things that other people didn't. He would never let me plant in roads in a field you could see from the road because I would plant crooked. But generally, <laughs> it was a 
it was a learn to build something, learn to do something. If your car doesn't run, take it apart and find out why. If you want to build something, find out how to do it. And we had a good, both a wood shop and a good farm shop. And so when they traveled, uh, the shop was always unlocked. And when they were at home, they would lock the shop at night. And the explanation was, well, if it's locked, they have to come to the house first and have a conversation. If it's if we're traveling and somebody needed something, we don't want them not to be able to get to it. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the community I grew up in was you know, fairly you know, tight knit. And this, the second story behind why he's a mentor and lived a life I wish I had been able to imitate better. Mm -hmm. um, once when they traveled out, my parents traveled out to visit me in Illinois. Um, <clears throat> one of the neighbors called because apparently they had announced it at church or something when the neighbors called me and said hey bruce just want to let you know you knew your mom and dad were out visiting this weekend so i went up and turned on the lights in the barn to make it look like they were home and about an hour later a neighbor from the other side of the farm called and said hey hey your mom and dad said they were traveling to see you just want to let you tell your dad dummy left these lights on in the barn so i went up and turned them off <laughs> And so with with your neighbors watching what you were doing and you helping them and um, being kind of raised in that kind of farm community, it was a question of uh, what is your obligation? Well, your obligation is to do what you can for those who need something. And and how do you learn something? Well, by doing. Uh, you are sounding a little bit like me growing up on the farm. One of my favorite sayings when I'm talking to, to especially farmers because they understand this is, you know, cats have nine lives. Farm boys have 99 lives and I've used about 98 of them. So <laughs> it sort of sounds like you probably used up a few of your lives on the farm. I, I, I There are times when I look at my hands and I go, how is it possible that I still have 10 fingers? <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time my brother and I, I was probably about 10 or 11 and he's 10 months of the day younger than me. And we were going to dig a, a hole to China. So we, we had this like, cliff area and we're digging a hole into the side of the cliff and the thing collapsed on me and if my brother hadn't have been there i would have been dead i right. mean i was i couldn't move he pulled me out and that's just one of 22 that i could probably talk about so uh, <laughs> how many days till you told your mom and dad i don't think i ever told him <laughs> so, uh. now some of the other ones involved me bleeding profusely and my mother had to take me into the doctor but uh okay. that we'll, we'll save that for another day but no, uh, all, all farmers now, seem to have that story too that's right yeah now now you're a full-time professor you you do own some farmland and so on but uh do you have any hobbies yeah i do actually um uh partly born out of necessity at first and now born out of love of the craft i uh, build almost all my own furniture and have built my own houses and do my own, you know, plumbing, electrical, woodworking, but mainly woodworking. So I have a pretty full scale commercial uh, quality equipment to build furniture. And, and my second hobby is golf. And most people who see me play golf say, if you play that much golf, you should either be better or quit. So <laughs> it's not that I'm good. And, and the last thing, I've developed a late-in-life love of piano, actually, just because I think of it as applied math. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. My uh, my youngest son taught himself to play piano uh, via YouTube, and for him, it is definitely that math-math uh, math relationship. I, I 
I grew up in a fairly musical family and was not going to compete because I was not going to win on that. I had a couple really talented sisters. And, and so I joined piano late in life. And when my kids were young and making them take lessons, one of them once said, well, if we have to take lessons, you should have to take lessons too. I'm like, I'm in. Good. Let's do that. <laughs> I can out bluff my kids. So, so I joined and started taking lessons and that was great. Except the first teacher that I took with while my youngest daughter was seven or eight, made me do the recitals with the seven and eight year olds. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, I probably was a little smarter because I have no musical talent, but when my son was learning the piano, my wife decided to take piano lessons and she actually did a recital at school. So, uh, oh, good. so the, but, uh, and then is there anything that keeps you up at night? Uh, you know, beyond caffeine, I guess, um, I, I I like I think everybody when you get to the age of your children being grown and not quite fully launched into the world, you know, just leaving college, I do worry about the world we're leaving them and the what feels to me like less civility generally in society. And I worry about that. At the same time, you look you look at their generation and I have some great faith and confidence in their cleverness and their ability to do things with technology that are still mind-boggling to me, the AI space and beyond. But no, I think it's I think it's just the normal. As you get old, you look backwards as much as forward. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, uh, although you're not a farmer, but uh, uh, what is your definition of success in farming or even in business? I mean, with your finance background, you see a lot of successful businesses yeah. out there. Yeah, I've, I've started several and, and some have succeeded and some haven't. And I have adopted three very clear rules. And I think they are, in fact, my definition of success, farming, business, maybe life in general. And rule number one, it has to be fun. And in that sense, I think it has to agree with your interests. Your, you, you can't be dishonest with yourself. You, you have to have fun doing it. Uh, number two, you have to do it with people that you would want in your life, even if you weren't doing what you were doing. So, you know, my my joke is it could be a stretch to find six people who want to carry my coffin. Uh, so I guess I better be cremated. It's lighter. Um, but no, to have people in your life that you, you know, after you're done with the decision, you still want to be around. And the third one is you have to make money. And making money is not being a cad. It's saying a responsible deployment of resources. If you're not making more out of it than you started with, it's not a good business. It's not a good life. It's not a good farming outcome. So I'm very much into the North Star of efficiency. And if that's important to succeed, then doing it in a way that you want to with, with people you care about and while you're enjoying it. Okay. Well, good, good. Again, Bruce, thanks for taking time out of your day. I think we'll definitely have another conversation down the road, but uh, Anything else you'd like to add before we uh, end the session? No, thanks, Paul. <laughs> always have fun speaking with you and always find uh, your insights incredibly valuable and appreciate you thinking of me. Um, I think you shared that this is somewhat over your 100th episode, which uh, suggests to me that, that um, I'm glad that there were at least 100 other people more interesting than me, and I'm sorry you had to get this far down on the list to have the conversation <laughs> now you know bruce that's not true but uh, uh, that, that, that's okay so uh, you know it is doing a podcast it's it's you know this part is actually the easiest part you know the tougher part is just okay now who am i going to speak to and then i got to reach out to them and then 
you know, the technology sometimes gets goofed up. I think I had to do one four times before we got it right, but I, I enjoy doing them. So again, Bruce, thanks a lot. This Thank is you. the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer, and this is Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. Yeah.